You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the PropG Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. I actually um, interned at a radio station. They would have people do a pig call because apparently when you do the whole sweet thing, it, it does like a level sweet. <laughs> have you never heard of pig call? I've never heard of pig call. No, I've never heard of that. Well, how does that yeah. attract pigs? You'll have to ask a pig. Hello, and welcome to Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Zach Beecham, and I'm here, as always, with Jennifer Williams and Alex Ward. Say hi, hi to our friends. Hi. Hello. Those of you who live in the Northern Hemisphere might have noticed that it's really hot outside, and that would be an understatement. In the past month, Japan, the United States, Canada, and several European countries have all broken previous heat records. In Japan, record high temperatures have seen dozens of deaths as thermometers have been 12 degrees hotter than the seasonal average. And in Sweden, the hottest summer for 260 years has seen over 25,000 hectares worth of wildfires burn across the country. That's including in the normally mild Arctic The situation in Greece right now is particularly dire. Just in the past week, over 80 people have died in raging wildfires. The town of Mati, a resort just outside of Athens, was the worst affected. The flames got so hot that cars were literally melting on the streets. And so the big question here amidst this heat wave that's causing dozens, maybe even hundreds of deaths across the Northern Hemisphere is whether or not it's caused by climate change. Now, this is actually kind of a complicated issue to parse out. So we brought in an expert, Umer Irfan, Vox's climate energy writer, to shed some light on the situation. Hi, Umer. Hey, Zach, how are you doing? Good, good. So, Umer, you are now on the clock. Please give our listeners a very simple, clear explanation of a profoundly complex topic. You bet. So, it's hard to say that any particular event is solely caused by climate change, whether events are individual data points and climate change is a trend line. But it's fair to say that extreme weather events like what we've seen are going to become more and more common as the Earth heats up. When average temperatures get higher, then the hot days become super hot. More heat waves and then all the things that result from them, like wildfires. You're already seeing, for example, fire seasons are getting longer all over the world. In the United States, they're pretty much year-round. So while it's tricky to blame specific weather events solely on climate change, it's fair to say that the sweltering summers like the one we're in have become more likely since humans started heating up the planet. This year, many parts of the world saw the hottest, most intense temperatures ever recorded. And as we continue pumping carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, those peaks will get higher and the heat is going to get worse. 
Thank you, Umer, for that very clear and uh, very depressing explanation of yeah. what's going on. Happy to oblige. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, man. Now I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the political implications of the fact that the planet is getting hotter. Jen, let me start with you. The U.S. military has used this term to talk about climate change. The term is threat multiplier when they're discussing the geopolitical implications. What does that mean? It's a really fancy military term that means threats get more thready. Um, (laughs) It's a technical term. Fact check true. Yeah. Uh, Basically, so whatever challenges and problems you're already facing are going to get more challenging and harder to deal with when you have the addition of you know, things like climate change. So you have, you know, ocean levels rising. You have military bases suddenly, oh, uh uh-oh, they're going underwater, uh, which is a literal thing that the U.S. military is worried about, various naval bases going maybe underwater and not being usable anymore. But more generally, you know, climate change has this kind of effect that the U.S. military has been really worried about and has been studying. So basically, you know, if you have, like, you know, Umar was talking about, if you have a wildfire, Right. So it's just going to make it worse. It's going to make it harder to deal with, you know, massive humanitarian issues like in Greece, for example, people were literally running into the ocean to try to get away from the fire and people were drowning. So, you know, you have these kind of massive uh, events that are becoming harder to deal with than they already would have been. What I think is important about the Greek situation in particular is it shows how this interacts with underlying political problems. So Greece, as you may know, has been suffering a serious economic crisis since the financial collapse, and the government has had to really cut back due to uh, EU rules and regulations on its public spending. And the result is that, according to some Greek citizens who were affected by the wildfires, they didn't get materials that were necessary in order to prepare themselves for a wildfire season. So as the temperatures get hotter, it makes wildfires more likely to spread. And in a situation where people are already lacking resources, the consequences of that decline in resources or political austerity or any other underlying problem become greater, become more magnified. And that's what this concept of threat multiplier means. Whatever it is that is bad, right, is likely to be worse in these situations. And climate change will compound underlying problems. So, Alex, it's not just the Northern Hemisphere, right? Like, this is a a much bigger concern in other parts of the world. Well, look, we've seen this kind of issue pop up all around the world. We've seen this happen, especially in in parts of Western Africa, where you've seen a lot of desertification. I mean, to to kind of put a... Sorry, desertification. Yeah, sorry, desertification just means a, a, a... Droughts have been causing deserts to get bigger. Land turning into desert. Land turning into desert, yeah. And, And effectively... To kind of put a fine point on the threat multiplier issue, if you have, let's say, groups of people fighting over water and there's less water, then you have more people fighting for that water or fighting to get access to other water. And this has been happening particularly in in Western Africa. And I know, Jen, you've done some research on this issue. Yeah. So in particular, just on the West Africa issue. So in Nigeria, there's literally a situation going on right now we've seen over the last several months and in the past year. Where these nomadic herders in the north, right? So they, these are people who, you know, move around. They're nomadic. They herd like cattle and goats and things like that. And they move their cattle around to graze on grass. Well, as the north becomes drier and drier, as desertification happens, they're having to move farther and farther south for their animals to be able to have access to grass to eat. Well, the people in the south are farmers and they happen to be using that land for, you know, farming. And 
farming and planting crops is not super conducive to having cows trampling on them and eating them. So there is actual conflict breaking out. So you have literal effects of climate change transforming into conflict. And then going back to the threat multiplier issue, it becomes kind of imprinted on top of their, okay, well, these people are different ethnic groups. So then it becomes this ethnic conflict. Or in other areas, maybe it's a religious conflict, right? So you have these kind of underlying tensions that become exacerbated where these people maybe got along kind of okay and had a kind of you know, stable way to kind of work near each other. But now because of climate change, they're coming into direct conflict and lives are being lost. People are dying. And this is something that the Defense Department is actually really worried about. So I worked on, and Alex, you mentioned, I worked on a project when I was an undergrad that was actually funded by, in part by the Defense Department on climate change and conflict and looking at basically whether there is a nexus, if there is a connection between climate change and conflict. And I was specifically focused on Africa um, and it was the social conflict in Africa database. And so we like basically just went through it and looked at all of the conflict and then we you know mapped that onto climate change. And so it's something that the Defense Department is very seriously worried about. And you know what's even crazier? Not only is the Defense Department worried about what's going on around the world, it's worried about how it affects the actual U.S. military itself. So let me just give you sort of one big example. The military within the United States has about 1,200 installations. That's fancy for bases or all kinds of military areas. Um, here's forts. A, forts, yeah. Here's a report from the U.S. military. So based on, on climate change, 782 of them are being impacted by droughts, 763 by high winds, 706 from non-storm surge flooding, or even 225 from storm-generated flooding. Wow. You've got 210 impacted by wildfires and 351 from extreme temperatures. That is insane. And I see pictures all the time of naval bases underwater. You're seeing that in Norfolk, Virginia, where the America's largest naval base, where you're seeing ships having trouble docking because of high waves. You're seeing water creep into Annapolis, like the, <laughs> the Naval Academy. This is happening now, and the worry is that by the year 2100, if that's the right way you say it at this point, like a bunch of naval bases in the Gulf of Mexico and the East Coast and even the West Coast might be underwater. But so I think it's really important that you – I'm glad that you mentioned that. Like this – a lot of times, especially when I was growing up, like talking about climate change or global warming as we used to call it, was this like thing that would happen in our future, right? It was this thing that like if we don't do something now – then eventually we're going to face these consequences. We basically shat the bed on that. It's over. <laughs> it's a technical term. And it's now, right? Like this isn't a future scenario. We're literally today facing the effects of climate change because these things didn't get fixed. That last thing, the the now part is, is what I find so crazy about this. As you said, it's like these are all demonstrable real effects. And – Imagine how much worse things get the more warming we get over the course of time, right? So you think the refugee crisis now is really bad, right. and it is. It's awful. It's it's arguably Especially the for worst. Europe. Yeah. yeah. Now imagine a world in which entire nations, and this is not a hypothetical. This is island nations like the Maldives are, are really terrified about this. Entire nations are flooded and are underwater permanently. Imagine you get mega cities in places like Bangladesh that are really exposed to floodwaters, where Potentially millions of people could be displaced from extreme weather events. The scale of social, humanitarian, and political disruption – I mean longtime listeners will know the refugee crisis pretty much caused the rise of the far right in Europe and serious tensions inside the EU. If this continues to get worse, the consequences could be for global stability, 
for millions upon millions of people's lives, even independent of the effects of the weather, which will be bad, just in terms of the political knock-on effects, right. could and, be really severe. And, you know, going back to kind of the threat multiplier issue, like you said, like, it exacerbates underlying issues. So, you know, if we talk about, you know, advanced developed countries like the U.S., like Japan, right? So I was listening to the BBC on the way in today in traffic, and Japan has, you know, is suffering heavily from this heat wave. There are, like, public pools in Japan that are too hot to even swim in, which is just insane because that's part of the, you know— infrastructure for where you go to cool people off in the summer. Vox has a really interesting piece up on the site about how it's not necessarily just the heat that can kill people. It's when they don't have an opportunity to cool off and there's no infrastructure for that. But Japan is also, I heard in this report, working on this AI, this system that will uh, kick on the air conditioner in buildings when employees start to get drowsy. So it monitors, uh, you know, eye movement to see if you start getting drowsy and kicks on the air conditioner. The reason I bring that up is that, you know, in a country like Japan, where you have a lot of money and you have a lot of infrastructure, you have the ability to, you know, maybe for next year, figure out ways to quickly address this issue to make sure that going forward, they have the money, they have the resources. In countries like Nigeria, in countries in what we vaguely call the global south, right, in countries that are less wealthy, you have fewer resources to throw at this problem, which means that these people end up suffering more. But it also ends up becoming a problem for the wealthy countries because where do you think people are going to go when they start to have problems, right? If if these problems in Nigeria get so bad, you know, what if the whole country turns into desert? Where do you think people are going to go? They're going to migrate because of course they are because I would too. So that's where you end up having this become a global rather than a local or regional problem. Right. And just to just to put a kind of a point on it uh, with with Japan, I mean, you had a Japanese meteorologist tell the Japan Times recently what's most frightening. This is a quote. What's most frightening is that what we once had no experience with is gradually becoming the daily norm. And that's what's nuts. Like even in countries like Japan that have this, as you mentioned, that have this kind of technology that foresee that are ahead of us technologically in many ways, they, they don't even know how to deal with this issue. And so when you go back to the vulnerable communities like I don't even know how – even if we wanted to all solve this problem at this moment, if there was sort of a collective action issue, I don't even know where you would start to solve this problem. When you talk about responses to climate change, right, there are two broad tranches of responses. One is adaptation, which is you just learn to deal with the fact that the climate is changing and you fix – you do you know the kind of thing, Jen, that you were just talking about. You – you know, put on air conditioners with robots or whatever. Um, right. And, or but, you, you know, build up sandbags and you build up Okay, yes, walls, that's the more right? reasonable like, one. More yes. infrastructure to make sure to kind of bolster, you know, defenses against climate change, right? And, and that has to happen. Oh, but the other big one and the one that we sort of talk about more politically is mitigation, uh, which is preventing climate – the climate from changing more than it already is going to. And a certain amount of climate change is already going to happen. And now we, we don't know – how well the world is going to do at mitigation. The Paris Climate Accords were a really big deal in terms of cementing a framework for international cooperation. Zach, remind me, just remind me, I, I always get these mixed up. Remind me about the Paris Climate Agreement. What was the Paris Climate Agreement? Yeah, it was a, an agreement under the Obama administration that was non-binding but set a framework for emissions reductions in all sorts of different countries. And despite it being non-binding, lots of countries actually started to act on its terms because it – 
created um, an organizing principle that they could all follow. It gave them all a roadmap for a serious international problem. This took tons of negotiations. It was a really big deal and made a lot of people more optimistic. Still, you know, we're all in trouble, but not we're all going to die sort of levels. Of we're all climate working change. on it. Yeah. And then Trump withdrew from the Paris Climate Accords last year. And now the, the non-binding. Right. Paris Climate Accords that we didn't have to technically do anything to be in part of, just so we're clear. And now it's it's not really clear. Like this happened in the middle of last year, roughly, and we still don't know exactly what the political situation going forward is going to be like or how countries will respond. I mean, climate change mitigation is wrapped up in all sorts of other issues. For instance, Trump's trade wars with China, one of the things that we put tariffs on uh, were Chinese solar panels to help the U.S. domestic solar manufacturing thing. Of course, that's just going to drive up the price of clean energy, which in turn makes it more makes it less likely that people will use solar panels, which means there will be less clean energy being used, most likely. Again, we're not sure how big those effects are going to be. We're not sure what the consequences of them are going to be. So Trump's you know, demolition of the U.S. participation in the Paris Climate Accords and challenge to the international economic and geopolitical order could create all sorts of chaos in unintended ways even for climate get, politics. I want to get back to – and you're totally right, Zach. I just want to get back to the, the point. I think we kind of glossed over the collective action problem. So not everyone went to, to school for political science. Bless you. Uh, probably, probably a good call. I'm just kidding. I love poli sci. But there, there's this concept, and I want to just kind of map it out here, called the collective action problem in political science that we talk about a lot, which is basically the, the problem of trying to get a group of people, or in this case, a group of countries, to all collectively do something that is, we say, that is rational for us collectively to do, but is irrational individually. So if you think about like taxes, right? It's collectively rational for us to all pay our taxes because then, oh, we have nice roads and bridges and, you know, a strong army and defense and things like that. But individually, well, if you guys are all paying your taxes, why should I? Because I'll just drive on your nice roads and your nice bridges and be protected by your nice big strong army and I'll save my money. Well, the way we get around that solving that collective action problem is by laws. Like we will, you know, arrest your ass and throw you in jail. I don't think we have debtor's prison anymore, but we will, you know, fine you and withhold your paycheck, I think, if you don't pay your taxes. So that's how we solve that problem. So the Paris Climate Agreement was an attempt to kind of do that because we don't have – really international laws in the way that you could really enforce that way. So it was kind of this, all right, we're going to all collectively agree to do this. But you still had that problem. There's no mechanism to force everyone to do it. It was just kind of like on the honor system, right? Well, then Trump, even though it was voluntary, still decided to pull out. Remember, he had that big, like dramatic press conference, you know, outside the White House in the Rose Garden, I think. And he's out there and he's like, we are pulling out of the disastrous climate deal that is bad for business. And I remember- It's not a bad Trump imitation. It's a little like light <laughs> on the details, but it's pretty good. I, I, was, I was really trying, so I'm, I'm kind of glad there. You got, you got the intonation. All right. right. I love it. But everyone was like shocked because it was like, wait, you don't, you don't actually have to- do anything, right? Like it was mostly symbolic. It was like if you are going to be part of it, you did agree to do certain things, but it's not like there was any law saying you had to. And so the fact that like, one, we're not even pretending to be part of this agreement symbolically is a really big deal, right? We're one of the biggest, you know, most developed countries. We also did a lot of the polluting like in the earlier years, the industrial revolution that we're still kind of making up for. So if 
if one of the biggest countries says, fuck you, we're not doing this, why should anyone else want to do it? And that's the problem. To be fair, though, the, the U.S. under Trump has reduced its carbon emissions and China has increased them. So even though we've gotten out of the accord, but and part of that is there's just now a norm now to reduce your your emissions and start working on alternative energies. And a lot of this, I mean, yes, you can say the government should tell you to do things and that's good to a certain extent. But the business community and private citizens have started to find a way to reduce their own emissions. Because uh, it's lucrative. Because <laughs> it's lucrative. And so like they're, they're – as, as much as maybe Trump himself may not want us to be in this to deal with climate issues like the previous administration did. Because it, it's a hoax created by China. Right. But it, but there does seem to be at least a, a private sector and private citizen movement to move in that direction. And even local and, mayors and, and governors and, right. too. And, and that's what I mean about uncertainty, right? We're not really sure how all of these different Trump administration policies are going to play out given – international opinion, given private sector, given state and local governments. We do know, though, that this is a massive problem and monkeying around with it in the way that the current government is doing is probably not the safest thing for reasons that we're seeing play out in terrible fashion in Greece right now. And after the break, we're going to talk about something a little more hopeful, the end of a long-running conflict. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. For Elsewhere this week, we're going to go to East Africa, specifically to Ethiopia and Eritrea, where a long-running conflict between these two countries recently came to a somewhat surprising end. Alex, why don't you walk us through what this conflict is and what happened recently that was so important? Well, sure. So the, the immediate thing we saw was this incredible celebration in, in Eritrea's capital, Asmara, where you had the Ethiopian prime minister go and travel there. They had this meeting. They hugged. People were there with Ethiopian and Eritrean flags just flying together. And this was an amazing sight. And there's a really a 20-year history for why that's the case. I could go on this forever, but the really short version is Ethiopia and Eritrea used to be one country. 
and eventually they, they broke up over some political and military differences, and they had a border crisis. Effectively, they could not distinguish whether the border in the northeast was Eritrea's or whether it was Ethiopia's, and it led to a three-year-long war from 98 to 2000 where about 80,000 people died. And it was like World War I-style trench warfare, like fighting, you know, mile by mile, inch by inch. The UN eventually put sort of a kibosh on that, saying, this is the border, deal with it. Eritrea was kind of like, fine. Ethiopia said, uh, no. And then they've just been fighting since then. Still with more fighting at the border, you know, each side trying to play with the politics of the other, and they weren't talking to each other, and families were separated. All of a sudden, a new prime minister comes in, Abiy Ahmed from uh, Ethiopia, and he said, I want to start opening relations with Eritrea, and all of a sudden, this seems to be happening. Just to kind of reiterate how massive a deal this is, right? Like, we talk about on this show a lot about war and conflict and death and destruction and, you know, horrific things, and the scenes that we saw this past, you know, week and a half or so since this happened were just incredibly joyous. Almost immediately since they made peace, they reopened embassies in each other's countries. They reestablished direct flights to one another's countries. The first flight when it landed, people were met with like roses and cheering and hugs. People are crying. Like this is literally a country that was fighting another country right next to it where families you know, we're living across the border. Families were divided. They've been fighting for decades. And all of a sudden, nobody really expected this. And there's just this peace breaking out. And it's just incredibly moving. Can someone explain to me why? Because I, I hadn't been like, following the situation closely. And all I just saw the headlines. And I was like, this is really surprising and, and hopeful. Well, it seems to be a political initiative from the new Ethiopian prime minister. Two things you should know. On the Ethiopian side, there were years of politics where it was basically, we don't like Eritrea, we will never be close to them. And Eritrea became effectively, some have called it the North Korea of Africa. It became just an insanely repressive state where it, where it was an indefinite military service. Like you need permits to have meals with your friends. And it was all in response to, because Ethiopia is a threat. And if we are just not basically a military state, Ethiopia will invade us and it'll be a whole thing. Which sounds a lot like North Korea. <laughs> Which sounds a lot like North Korea. But this new prime minister from Ethiopia made it his mission, kind of broke through the politics of his country and made it his mission to reach out to Eritrea. Now, there are some pitfalls. It's possible that a future peace deal won't happen. But for now, it looks like, amazingly, a 20-year war has ended. Didn't the, did, didn't the Emirates, United Arab Emirates, didn't they play a bit of a role too? I, I thought I thought I heard something about that. Yes, Ethiopian Eritrea got help for this. The U.S. played sort of a role. The UAE played a role. Saudi Arabia played a role. All of these countries have an interest in, in Ethiopian Eritrea being close. And it mostly has to do with, surprise, surprise, economics. Yeah, I was going to guess, uh, was it just like out of the, the goodness of their heart? No, that, doesn't, like, that doesn't sound like the Gulf Does, Doesn't sound like Saudi, but I could be wrong. Look, Eritrea was like funding al-Shabaab, a terrorist group in Somalia, and, and causing instability in that region. And Ethiopia was, of course, like doing shitty things to reach as well. But like the real sort of issue here is commerce. So one part of it is uh, Ethiopia was landlocked because it lost Eritrea as part of its country and it lost access to a very important port. So then Ethiopia started working with Djibouti, but there were issues in the, with Djibouti as well. And so having the port access from Eritrea and then also, since Ethiopia is friends with Saudi Arabia and, and the UAE, then all of a sudden everyone gets access to this port. Eh, things start getting better in the Horn of Africa. Everything, oh, hey. Yeah, everything now we starts, have access to right. ports so we could sell and move goods. Right. So, And then on the U.S. side, this has just been something that we've been wanting to see 
solved for quite some time. The U.S. has been friendly with Ethiopia for years and uses the counterterrorism partner. But, of course, no one really wants a war in eastern Africa. So since, you know, you talked about Eritrea being like the North Korea, I've heard some people talking, you know, Eritreans in particular, saying like, okay, this is all well and good, but, okay, are there going to be reforms now? Like, what does this mean for Eritrea? Like, you've lost your raison d'etre for this repressive state. Like, the entire reason for you to have, like, indefinite military service and to have this super militaristic, you know, kind of approach to running your country is gone effectively. So what does that mean? Like, is there, do we even know? Well, my impulse is that authoritarianism, like life, finds a way. It always comes up with a rationale for justifying continued rule. Is it a Jurassic Park reference? That was 100% a Jurassic Park. <laughs> just wanted Park. to make sure and our, our listeners, solid reference. Yeah, look, regimes don't like to reform voluntarily, and they can come up with lots of different ways and justifying ideologies to maintain themselves. I mean, North Korea's uh, Juche state ideology has uh, long survived its sell-by date at the right. time when it made sense. So it wouldn't surprise me if the Eritrean government figures out some other thing to tell its people about this. You know, we need to guide you through the process of peacemaking. Reforms now would destabilize things and jeopardize this kind of situation or even come up with some kind of cult of personality thing for the leadership. I, I It's like it's just given what we know about the way authoritarian states function, it would surprise me. It's a playbook. Yeah. And, you know, I guess I just I would hope and – I don't know how much hope there is for this, as we've seen maybe in South Sudan, that, you know, the international community in a lot of ways, and in particular the United States, has been less interested in giving a shit about Africa, I think you could say fairly under this administration, than we did under the previous administration and even the one before that. I would imagine that things could progress well. You know, we make fun or we kind of joke about the economic, you know, impetus for this, but that's... It, it worked, right? It seems to have – so I'll take it. And hopefully I would imagine that, you know, hopefully that improving the economic infrastructure and access and commerce in both of these countries would hopefully provide prosperity for both countries and would hopefully maybe convince people that maybe peace is the way to go. I would like to be hopeful and see that. I would like for this, you know, amazing story not to end and and it collapsed back into war. Let me ruin your hope. So there, there, there's, there's, there are a couple of pitfalls here. Number one is, as Zach kind of alluded to, Eritrea, and actually you both have alluded to, Eritrea's sort of whole reason for being is Ethiopia is a threat. If Ethiopia is no longer a threat, then what happens to that government? And does Ethiopia care if Eritrea reforms in some way? Also in Ethiopia, there are hardliners, anti-Eritrea hardliners, that are asking the prime minister to not do this. And so it's possible that on either side this kind of breaks down. Of course, what does the peace accord look like? Are they actually really okay with the borders as they are? What happens then? Does Richard become part of Ethiopia again? Like, there's there are all these kinds of of, of questions. So but, basically, we have like the big glorious celebration of like peace, but now comes like the hard part. The hard part, which is part. actually working out the details yeah. of a peace agreement. But, but look, headline: a conflict that was ta- that took about twenty years seems like it might be coming to an end, and we should celebrate that. Yeah, that's the that's the takeaway I want people to have from this. Not the Debbie Downer part, which we specialize in at Worldly, but the you know what. An Ethiopian leader came in and through basically an exercise of of political will and coalition building and, and effective diplomacy internationally made progress, maybe not permanent progress, maybe not, you know, everything will be great. But in, demonstrable uh, progress. Yeah. And it shows that diplomacy, international arrangements, uh, effective leadership, that these things can still, even given how depressing the rest of the world feels, 
make a difference and actually lead to a situation improving. And on that relatively happy note, uh, I'd like to uh, close for the week. I want to thank our producer, Bridget Armstrong. I want to thank uh, the overall Vox Media podcast shepherd, Jillian Weinberger. I want to thank our social media manager, Julie Bogan. And I would like to encourage you, the listener, to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, whatever it is that you use to listen to podcasts, you should subscribe to us on it. And and also, Wordly has been nominated for a People's Podcast Choice Award, which is awesome. So you can vote for our show because we know you love us. Go into podcastawards.com or by just clicking on the link in the show notes. Voting ends Tuesday, July 31st, so please don't wait. Podcastawards.com right now. Cast your vote for Worldly because we love you and you love us. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the future of entrepreneurship of Prop G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.